This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. Hello and welcome to the Music To My Ears podcast brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, the world's best-selling classical music monthly. This week, reviews editor Michael Beek sits down with Jake Heggie, one of America's busiest and most popular composers. Perhaps best known for operas such as Dead Man Walking and It's a Wonderful Life, Heggie recently completed a song cycle based on poems by Margaret Atwood and has a new album out in September featuring mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton. Speaking from his home in San Francisco, Jake discusses his craft, writing for great voices, and the musical loves and inspirations that have been important in his life. So, Jake, thanks again so much for for braving the the morning hours for us. (laughs) It's my pleasure. Good to be with you. (laughs) You you said you're you're not much of a morning person. Does that that inhibit composing if you can't get up early? (laughs) Uh, no, I actually, as long as I'm, I'm not an early morning person. No. I never have been. Um, but as long as I'm at my studio 10 in the morning, something like mm-hmm. that, that gives me time to wake up, um, have coffee, have some breakfast, walk to the studio, um, where I, where I write, which is about a mile from my house right. and, uh, and then get going and also, uh, just move, get everything going and, um, start to develop some ideas. And that's the great thing about having the studio a mile away is um, I go to work um, to write. And also I'm moving into a place where there's complete, this sort of joyful, blissful uncertainty <laughs> um, where anything is possible. It's sort of like my playroom and, you know, that, that's how I have to write. It has to be playtime so that anything is possible. There, there are no bad ideas. There are just some ideas that are much better than others. I see, I see. And are you quite yeah. regimented about your, your work time? Do you, do you start at the same time every day and work till a certain time or do you just sort of let it flow? When I'm, when I'm composing a new piece, yeah. um, 
it's it's a lot more fluid because you're creating it from scratch. So um, just showing up at the studio and knowing something will happen. I don't know what, maybe it'll mm -hmm. be a couple of measures, maybe it'll be a lot of measures, um, but knowing when to stop and pull back um, so that because something is still developing in my head. And then there's those great days when a lot happens. But once I've got, I always do a, like a piano version, a, a short score first um, so that it's playable for other people. And I still write everything by hand. But once I've got that done and that's in good shape, then I'm orchestrating and I can orchestrate from eight to six, from nine to five, from 10 till eight. That is a very different process. And um, it's also joyful because it's adding color and dimension that wasn't there before, even though I think orchestrally. So it's, they're different. They're very different parts of the process, but um, I just need to show up every day and then I know something will happen. <laughs> and and you've lived in the city for a long time. Uh, is is it an inspirational city musically? Can you can you pick up inspiration as you're wandering the streets and, and looking? At I the, moved the here in 1993, and yeah. yes, it is a incredibly inspiring environment. It's a city that is alive with the arts and with connection. It's very small mm -hmm. um, from certain parts of the city. You can see the entire city. Um, I love to walk up into the hills overlooking everything. I find the weather in, invigorating and inspiring, even though it can be really, really cold in the, in the summer. Um, I find that very invigorating. And it's one of the reasons I want to move up here. I lived in Los Angeles before this, and I was not mm. inspired creatively in Los Angeles. And uh, there was a sort of a dark, darker chapter of my creative life there that I wanted to get away from. And this city just opened up so much opportunity. And when I moved here, I immediately got work at the opera and met all the greatest singers in the world. And then they asked me to write songs and that led to opera commissions. And I just don't know that that could have happened elsewhere. So I have a great affection for San Francisco and a, a love for the city and being here to write. I can't really write on the road. I have to be here. Right. I see. And and growing up, where did music fit in? What was what were early inspirations? Like the first piece you fell in love with, perhaps? <laughs> well, there was always music in my house. My mm. father was an amateur jazz saxophonist. And he was a medical doctor. Uh, my mom was trained as a nurse, um, but he loved the, to play jazz saxophone. So on the stereo all the time were big band recordings with singers like Ella Fitzgerald and Frank Sinatra and Joe Stafford and Peggy Lee. And those were the voices that I heard growing up. And then my sisters loved the rock musicals that were coming out at the time, Godspell, Superstar. Uh, my mom listened to a variety of things, uh, Carly, Simon, Barbara Streisand, all these things were playing all the time. And then one day a friend brought over a record of Arthur Rubinstein playing the Moonlight Sonata. Mm. And uh, just, just the first movement, I fell in love with it. And I had started playing the piano when I was seven and was doing this sort of boring piano method. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I heard this music and I just knew I had to try and then I heard Schubert impromptus and things like that. But the Moonlight Sonata was really transformative for me. Um, and then a friend, I, I, I had only, it was a Beethoven highlights collection. So I only knew about the first movement. And then a friend <laughs> came over and said, there's more. And we were so excited. And so I ran, I had a paper route and I used my money uh, from my paper route to buy scores. And I ran to the store and bought the full thing 
and read through it voraciously and then bought the Rubenstein recording of the whole thing. And uh, it was it was just one of those light bulb moments where ev- everything changed for me because of that piece. And, and how about opera? What, what was your first exposure to opera? My first exposure to opera was a really bad production of Aida when I was about <laughs> 14 in Columbus, Ohio. Um, I think it was well sung, but the production was old flats and, you know, it was it was pretty dreadful. Um, the most memorable thing from a 14-year-old's perspective was that in the temple dance, uh, two of the dancers' costumes actually fell off by mistake. <laughs> so you can imagine from a 14-year-old, oh, is this opera? This is very interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> but musically, it did. It made an impact, but it wasn't as strong an impact as musicals had had on me because I'd seen amazing productions. Mm. Um, but the, the first opera that really blew my mind, I, I after high school, I went to Paris and I saw The Marriage of Figaro at the Garnier with Kiri Takanoa and Frederica von Stade. Wow. And then I moved to Los Angeles to go to UCLA and I saw Sweeney Todd on tour with Angela mm-hmm. Lansbury. And then very shortly after I saw Peter Grimes with John Vickers. And that, again, the top of my head just sort of exploded. I, I couldn't believe that it was possible to create lyric theater like that in the world. Um, I knew it was possible on the musical theater stage because that's primarily what I'd been exposed to. But then when I heard those great voices singing um, singing in Peter Grimes and the music is so overwhelming and the story is so wrenching, um, it just, again, it was a transformative moment when I saw a possibility that I didn't know was there before. Absolutely. And that, and that yeah. led you to want to, to, to write opera and, and, and work in the industry? I never, no, I never thought I'd write an opera. Really I still not. thought maybe I'd write a musical. I could get my head around that. But yeah. how you could ever write something of the scope of an mm. opera was baffling to me. So at that point, I, I was writing mostly for trained operatic voices by then. In my teens, I was writing songs to my own lyrics, primarily for people like Streisand, because those were the voices I knew, Julie Andrews, Barbara Streisand. So I was writing for those voices. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in my 20s, when I was at UCLA, I started hearing amazing singers traveling from all over the world. Um, And uh, I I went to a Leontine Price recital um, and was asked to turn pages for that recital. And uh, the power of that woman's presence and her voice was again just transformative and overwhelming. It was so deeply moving. She was so human and real and so mighty. And sitting from the page turner's chair and watching her from behind and watching that back fill with air, you know, and then following that sound out into the audience and and. There was a visceral reaction in the audience when she would sing. People would move back. They would lean in. They would step, sit back. It was so powerful, and it was another step along the way. Yeah. But it wasn't until um, 
I was in San Francisco in my early 30s and working at the San Francisco Opera, working with great singers and writing songs for them and watching opera produced at every level was kind of the most beneficial um, uh, apprenticeship that a young composer could have as an aspiring opera composer, although I did not know I was an aspiring opera composer. I thought I'll write songs. I was working in the PR marketing department, writing press releases for all these great artists and wow. productions. And, and But it was my home, the opera house, and I was watching opera at every level, every kind of opera, great singers from all over the world, great conductors, and watching it be put together. And that, I think opened up a sense of possibility, but it was the general director, Latvi Mansouri, who stepped forward one day and said, look, you're writing songs for all these great singers. They're being done all over the world. Have you ever thought about writing an opera? And I said, no. <laughs> and he said, well, I think you're a theater composer and I wanna send you to New York to meet with Terrence McNally, the playwright, who I think um, would write a great libretto. I've been trying to convince him that he would write a great libretto. And I think you might come up with something great. And that was the first steps along the way to Dead Man Walking. Now, you mentioned the, the Leontan Price uh, uh, concert. Would that be a, a performance that sits at the very top for your live music experiences? Uh, it's definitely one of them. You mm. know, it's it's interesting. I've been privileged to hear so many incredible performances in concert. You know, um, Bernstein conducting the L.A. Phil and Boulez conducting in Paris, conducting Jesse Norman when I was a teenager. I, I've heard so many great performances that I think it's the ones that were the most impactful for some reason, because I was ready for a transformation. The Leontine Price one, yes, it it sits very close to the top because I'd never experienced a performance like that with a powerful artist who held an audience in their hand and had this, not only the great voice, but the technique and power that she'd been working on all of her life to be able to deliver a message that was larger than any one person that transcended and transformed and united that community in that very sacred special space of the theater. I probably didn't even realize how special it was at the time. form a huge sort of sort of heart to your work because you you write a lot of um, song cycles and of course opera um, yes. so uh, tell me about wor working with voices and, and and the sort of voices you're inspired by uh, what do you get out of voices and, and does that sort of uh lead you into the way you're going to write for them um yes it's it's not just their voice it's the whole personality and sure. persona mm. of a singer um it's what you know, i say to young composers all the time imagine you're a screenwriter and you've been invited to write a movie, say, about Eleanor Roosevelt, okay? And you're like, okay, fine, Eleanor Roosevelt. And then, and then they say, oh, and by the way, we have Meryl Streep to play Eleanor Roosevelt. Well, all of a sudden it comes alive and you have great clarity and you can do anything, right? Um, and you can certainly try anything because you has this curious artist, this great, powerful presence that you're able to write for. And that's the same way when writing an opera. I'm going to write the character. I'm going to write for the story. But knowing who I'm dressing it on makes it come to life in a very mm -hmm. special way. So it's 
it doesn't have to be the most beautiful voice in the world. It sometimes is, sometimes isn't, but there's got to be something very special about the way they connect with a story, with language, with the line, um, and knowing that I think they'll they'll respond well to what I write, uh, in particular. Um, it, it's it's a it's very difficult. It's just again something that you know when it happens. Like yeah. I knew that I was a, a good fit for Frederica von Stade and Renee Fleming and Sylvia McNair and Bryn Terfel and um, and for uh, Susan Graham and Joyce DiDonato and Jamie Barton and they just keep coming along. <laughs> and yeah. sometimes it's 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 a it's an obvious fit right away, and sometimes it's a mystery, but. Uh, it, it's very, very exciting when it happens. Um, part of what I look for in a singer too is again, that sense of curiosity where I know whatever I write, they're going to make it their own and I'm going to learn something from it that I didn't know about before. Yeah. Something is going to happen and open up a different perspective, a different uh, register or f- of feeling that I didn't even, I wasn't aware of when I was writing and I'm gonna learn something from them about the piece that I wrote. I think that's part of the measure of great performers and great artists is we know every note, we know every word and yet something shifts, something magical happens that we had never experienced with that piece before or with that note or with that phrase or with that opera. If you're enjoying the music so far, do head to this episode's Spotify playlist where you can find complete performances of all the pieces discussed as well as some bonus tracks. You'll find the link in the podcast description. And you've worked also with a lot of uh, classic uh, literary material. Um, Mm. Is it quite a different uh, process for you working with material written by uh, maybe a a long dead writer as it is to to working with, for example, Margaret Atwood, who you've worked with recently? Yeah, Um, it's interesting with a with a living writer of course there's i can talk to the person and ask yeah. them to read it for me or what was their intention here or there i still have to no matter whether it's written by someone long gone or someone alive my job as the composer i feel is to respond and see how that resonates with me and react with that response um a good example of this is uh, one time Jean and I were working on a project called Pieces of 9-11, which was a response to the uh, 9-11 attacks in New York, which, but a response from people in Houston, Houston Grand Opera, because a lot of the first responders came from Houston and people all over the world were affected by what happened on 9-11, even if you weren't in New York. And so that was, but he went and interviewed people um, and then developed texts based on their interviews and gave me um, texts with words that he used uh, that some of them and were, were directly from those people. And he asked me, well, the company asked me, do you want to go meet those people as well? And I said, you know what? I, I think it's better if I just react. If I get to know that person too well, I, it will limit what I'm going to do because I'll be locked into a particular idea of what that person is or who they are. And I need to have a broad range. It needs to be more universal for me. When writing Dead Man Walking, a lot of people said, do you want to go to the death chamber at Angola? And I was, no, 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 no. <laughs> if I go, I'll never be able to write a note, you know? Really? Um, and it was the same with Margaret Atwood's amazing texts. Um, they're called Songs for Murdered Sisters. And it's about domestic violence, essentially, in Canada, the UK, and around the world. Um, 
based on a, the story of uh, this baritone Josh Hopkins, who uh, who's a Canadian, and his uh, sister was murdered the same day that this man who was her ex-partner went and murdered her and two other ex-partners. Wow. And it, he just needed to, to sing about it, to be a voice. And so Margaret had had this experience of losing two friends to domestic violence as well. And so she wrote these poems and uh, my job was to respond to them. That's the best way I could honor all of those women, all of those situations was just to respond. Um, and setting Moby Dick, I don't know Melville, but I, my job is to respond, empathize with the characters, find out what the pulse of that music feels like, what the harmonic world of that feels like, and then put it out into the world. Yeah. And with the likes of Moby Dick and, and Dead Man Walking, you, you've created sort of other works based on on those operas uh, for mm-hmm. orchestra and beyond. Is it is it interesting to return to them and sort of reimagine them? It's very challenging. Yeah. <laughs> um, anytime, because a, a creative period for any piece, a song, a song cycle, an opera, a symphonic work, you're immersed in that world and in the color and sound and feeling of that world, that harmonic musical world there that you're creating. And then you move on and you move on to other things. So going back, that's why cuts are, I love cuts but rewrites are so challenging because you have to try to get back into that mindset, into that zone, that creative zone that you had all that time ago. And that is incredibly challenging, I find. Um, So making suites based on works that have existed or or, uh, were around, I find also very challenging, which is why the Moby Dick uh, orchestral suite was done by a conductor that knows that piece really, really well. And then he just, it's Christian Machelaru, and he um, he loved the piece so much. He was the original assistant conductor at the premiere, and he loved it so much that he um, wanted to create an orchestral suite, and I gave him permission. And he checked everything with me, but I was so glad he was doing it and not me. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing with orchestral reductions of pieces. Like there, there's a, there are two orchestral reductions of Dead Man Walking from the original, but revisiting and reorchestrating to me is just so challenging to get back into that mindset and yeah. figure out you know, which of, uh, which of the baby's fingers and toes do I want to cut off, you know? So how do you decide that? <laughs> well, how do you re- reduce it, something which right. works so well? So having a great conductor that loves the piece and knows it inside out, who has that perspective, that fresh perspective on it, is much better than me doing it. Now, talking of, of going back, uh, is there a piece of music you can't live with that, that you return to and, and, and listen to again and again? Yes, and it might be surprising, but it's... Um, the slow movement to the Chopin E minor piano concerto. Uh, mm. Chopin has always been a very special composer to me. After the Beethoven Moonlight Sonata, I discovered Chopin and the preludes and the etudes and the barcarolle and the concerti. And at some point I was introduced to a special recording of Gilmar Novaes, the Brazilian pianist, yeah. playing the slow movement of the E minor concerto. And... It was, to me, the definition of poetry. And I go back to it. I can, I can get teary-eyed just talking about it right now. It moves me deeply mm. uh, to think of Chopin as this young man finding his way and creating this enormously beautiful, beautiful incredibly simple um, piece that transcends time, borders, languages, 
And for some reason, that's the one I go back to again and again. a highly underrated artist. Yeah. In a field of male pianists, she was a mighty woman. And uh, I think that was probably threatening to a lot of those those male musicians. But th- thankfully, the world has changed. We have many now, which is great. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and speaking of, of mighty women, uh, you're working with the brilliant Jamie Barton um, and you've got a new <laughs> album, new album coming out, uh, Unexpected Shadows. Uh, what can you what can you say about about that disc and working with Jamie? Well, I first met Jamie when she was a young artist at the Houston Grand Opera. She was one of the three ladies in um, The Magic Flute. And the minute we met, she and I just started laughing and (laughs) just recognized each other. And we've stayed in touch ever since. Uh, We decided she was already singing a song cycle of mine, a two-song cycle called Of Gods and Cats. And she said, someday we need to collaborate and you need to write something for me. And the opportunity came up uh, at a Carnegie Hall recital she had in 2015. And I wrote a piece for her called The Work at Hand, which was written by my friend, Laura Moorfield, who sadly passed away from uh, colon cancer at age 50 in 2011. And she was writing about the experience of recognizing her diagnosis and dealing with uh, letting go and finding some kind of grace and peace. Um, And it was so powerful. And that's what I wanted to write for Jamie. And uh, it includes a a cellist. And so it went so well. And it was so, such a, again, a transformative, special experience. And she has grown as an artist and we've become great, great friends. So we just knew at some point we needed to record it and that we wanted to record a whole album. And so that's that's what led to um, creating this uh, CD. She was in town in San Francisco a year ago to do uh, Rusalka playing Yejibaba, the witch. And there was she was going to have two weeks after that finished so we could go uh, and record it uh, up in Marin, Marin County at Skywalker. And uh, we just, we had a great time. We played back and forth with what we would include, but she's just at the peak of her powers and she the range of the voice is so extraordinary from very low to very high completely even there's no break in the voice it's just an expressive she has access to every emotion um, because the technique is so remarkable and her heart is so vast so um uh, just a great joy and i'm writing a, a big role for her in a new opera right now that is set to open in uh late october of uh 2021 again in Houston. I was going to say, and that's called Intelligence? Yes, it's called Intelligence. It's about these amazing women spies in Richmond, Mm. Virginia during the American Civil War. Um, The cast also includes Janae Bridges and Golda Schultz. And um, it's, it's a really remarkable piece. It's going to feature eight great opera singers and eight modern dancers. It's something I've never done. Uh, really excited about it. We're doing. We're telling it in a very contemporary way, rather than as a period piece. So it feels very alive and very much of the moment and in the moment, yeah. which it is because it's mm-hmm. one of those timeless stories that 
we wish didn't have to be timeless, you know, that it didn't keep repeating and yet it does. And yet it's, it's very inspiring and hopeful um, and very connected to identity, ancestry, and the idea that when you, when any one of us walks through a door, you don't walk alone. You go with everyone who's ever walked with you or everyone from your past. And that's why taking big chances, it can seem scary. And yet you're not really doing it alone. Everyone's going with you. When you're working on, on something new, are you able to listen to anything else? Or do you have to absolutely focus on, on what you're working on? It's a sad truth that I, <laughs> when I'm working on a new opera, it just has to be, I have to be completely devoted to that yeah. piece. I can't really go out and listen to other things. Um, and I wind up being a little ignorant of some of the music that's going on around me. Um, even though when I'm not in the middle of a big project and I can go out to the opera, to the symphony, to concerts, to to listen to other things, I, it's joyful because they influence me and they stretch my ear and my mind. But when I'm writing a project, I have to be obsessed with it. That's why I, yeah. I said earlier, I have to be in love with it. I have to have that shiver where I can't wait to get to my studio every day because that amazing unknown certainty, uh, uncertainty is going to deliver something mighty. And uh, I just have to show up and listen. But I have to be very faithful to the sound world that is being created in that moment. Otherwise, I kind of lose touch with it. I can, it, can, it can go away. It's, it's a very special gift I'm aware that, I, that I'm able to work with. And focusing on it and honoring it is a, a big part of the job. Absolutely. So safe to say that intelligence is your, your current musical obsession. That's all you, can, not all you can live and breathe. It is. And uh, it's not just living and breathing that. It's literally uh, the voices that I'm writing for. So Jamie's voice and her presence. Uh, Golda Schultz, who I just met, she did The Angel in It's a Wonderful Life in San Francisco. And then, of course, she's been singing at the Met and all over. Extraordinary singer, extraordinary presence. And Janae Bridges, extraordinary voice and presence. She actually, Janae was the first African-American mezzo to sing the role of Sister Helen Prejean at uh, Vancouver Opera three years ago, which is when I first got to know her. And I've always wanted to do something for her. But just those voices really set set me on fire and uh, wondering how that's going to infuse the character in the opera and the line of the story. It's a, it's a really magical, uh, exciting space to be in. Terrifying. It's always terrifying. Uh, <laughs> it kind of has to be. I don't think a project is worth taking on if it doesn't terrify you a little bit. If you feel sure. totally comfortable, how are you ever going to grow or stretch or write something meaningful? It needs to be scary to take it on. And it is, but it's kind of a really exciting, scary. <laughs> well, that's brilliant. and really looking forward to hearing it. Of course, yeah. too early for a clip, so we can't play a clip from it, but maybe we'll, we'll play a clip from Unexpected Shadows. That'd instead. be great. Once when God was a little boy, his mother caught him breaking his toys, then gluing them back together again with prayers and incantations. That was composer Jake Heggie there on the music he loves to write and to listen to. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the team of BBC Music Magazine. Do let us know what you think by rating and reviewing it wherever you've been listening. And do subscribe. 
If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, we're available in print and in various digital formats across the world, or you can visit our website, classical-music.com, where you can read all about the latest musical happenings, read thousands of reviews, and a good deal more. Thank you to Acast for hosting this podcast, and to producers Ben Newitt and Jack Bateman. Music